Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See? Am I panic there as I'm trying to get my phone? We do have a sermon to preach this morning. So thank you to technology. That muscle strength there is it. Can we keep your Bibles open? I'm going to continue in our series of Philippians. Thanks, Christine, for reading. Um, I know I said it wasn't about resolutions, uh, but nonetheless we are going to talk about resolutions this morning. And I wonder how many of us uh, have made resolutions already. 2018. I know I have. I've got four. They all begin with P. They alliterate. Um, so I can't stop myself from an addict. Even that alliterates with alliteration on it. <laughs> you know all that stuff. New, new Year, New Me. Instagram is full with it. People talking about what's going to be fresh and new and exciting in the year. And I, I can't help but admit that I'm a total sucker for any of that stuff. I love the freshness and the newness that comes with the turning, the arbitrary turning over of a page on the calendar. For me, it just brings this uh, opportunity to look in a fresh way at life. But if you're anything like me, and you like New Year's resolutions, and you're committed to the concept of resolutions, you know that making a resolution is a lot easier than keeping a resolution. How many of us invested in a gym membership in uh, who've dusted off the juicer that we were given two years ago. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have an article at the end. Yeah. You know, in, in an attempt to sort of, you know, improve ourselves, we've done all that stuff, but we know that actually when mid-January hits, things get a little bit more difficult. It's cold out, and the romance of the new year is gone, and it just becomes a little bit more difficult to keep up, to keep going, to keep moving forward, to keep the energy flowing. Remember, uh, one new year, a number of years ago, probably not that many years ago, probably fewer years ago than I'd like to admit. Amy and I were living uh, with another family. We shared a house in South West London, partly because we wanted to explore this idea of living in community, and partly because we could afford to live on our own. <laughs> I'll let you be a judge of which was more powerful. Motivator. <laughs> I digress. And uh, uh, around the year's time, we were in our bedroom actually, and we were just hanging out at the house, sort of hanging out. And we would happen to be looking through some old pictures. I had my computer open, and we were just looking through some old pictures. And I saw a picture of a young chap, probably in his late teens, uh, maybe his early twenties. And um, he looked, he looked quite fit, and he looked 
I, I'm, you know, slightly embarrassed to say that in the picture he had his shirt on. You know, there was some pretty decent definition in his outfit. He looked slim, he looked strong, he looked kind, he was compassionate, not weak. He was funny, he was engaging, he was me. Uh, it was me. <laughs> and I looked at the picture, and I looked particularly at the definition of the, um, the abs, and I looked down at my, my own tummy. <laughs> I, I tell you no lot, I didn't miss a beat. I got changed, I put my running shoe on, and I ran, I ran straight out the house. And, and the other girls were like, what are you doing? I got back and I did some sit-ups and then press-ups. I think that, that new me, that lasted about two months. I didn't really well with that one. I was so desperate looking at this picture of myself in the past that I just wanted, I was completely changed. The goal, the, the direction we're heading in, the goals that we set for ourselves, and the motivations that we have for those goals, say a huge amount of us as people, a huge amount about us as people. <coughs> There really isn't a lot that's more important for us than where we think we are headed, where we are attempting to be headed. Our goals are actually really important. That's why I like, that's why I buy into, at some level, the concept of resolutions. And I actually think this concept is, is prevalent, is, exists, and we see it all the way through the scripture. Uh, the, the, the goal, the intention, Jesus was talking about the intention, the posture of your heart. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is, is really all about the heart, the heart's intention, the heart's direction. And we as the church need to ask the question, where are we headed? Where are we resolved to go? What direction should we be headed in? And how can we make sure we're headed in the right direction and that we get to where we should be going? Now Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, which we've been looking at for a number of weeks now. And he writes to this church in this little colony, uh, this little colony of Rome in Philippi. And he writes to them, a church that he himself has planted. And as we've said before, it's a really diverse congregation. This group's made up of uh, Lydia, who was probably the first host of the church. Uh, she was a businesswoman, uh, a go-getter, really effective leader. And, and there was her, but there was also probably, uh, very possibly, the slave girl who followed Paul around, who was demonized, and Paul delivered from uh, uh, demonic oppression, I like to imagine. She was there, maybe the jailer in his household. Remember, the, the guy that uh, put him in jail was, um, his whole household came to faith. So no, his spirit shadow. Maybe it's this sort of, it's this broad collective of people in Philippi. Paul is right to this church from prison. And he's right to them for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is to, is to thank them for their concern, which they display by sending a gift with Epaphroditus. What a great name. Not enough children today called Epaphroditus. <laughs> Thinking about a child, please consider Epaphroditus. He's writing this to, to thank them for this gift that they've given to catch them up on his news. But also he's heard their news. Epaphroditus has given some of their news to Paul, and there's some stuff in there that he's just rejoicing about. In fact, the theme of this, this book is joy. But there's also a few things that concern a little bit, particularly stuff around how they're getting along, or in fact how they're not getting along. And some of the challenges that are facing in a pagan culture, how the challenges to living the faith, to keeping walking in the right direction. And in many ways, what we have in the central section of this book is Paul's resolution for this church. How he expects 
hopes, anticipates dreams. And I want to pick out three key elements from the, the, the text that was read to us. I want to say, uh, sort of making a general statement from this specific text, I want to say that if we're going to fit, um, if we're going to follow through this Christian life, if it's not just going to be sort of a fleeting uh, effort, an attempt at the beginning of the year, but something that we keep walking in, not just for a year, but for the whole of our lives, so that we could uh, finish stronger than we started. If we're going to be those kinds of people, then we need to be sure that we have the right goal. That we have a secure plan. We need a goal. We need a plan. And we need some significant energy as well. I want to begin with this idea of goal. I, I spoke to you, you know, in the interest of vulnerability and authenticity about my vain goal of a number of years ago. A goal birthed entirely in vanity. Uh, my, my running running goal, my fitness goal a few years ago. Now for me, in that particular uh, scenario, in that particular circumstance, the goal was just pretty shallow, let's be honest. Uh, and right at the heart of that goal was me. Not just me, but just a particular vision, a particular nostalgic vision of me. It's not a great thing, it's not a great uh, Habit to begin with yourself when you're forcing goals, by the way, for the New York friend of time. That's exactly what I did. In my own story, the goal uh, was a return to my late teens physique, which, by the way, I found impossible to get there. Now, there's something wrong with this that I basically don't even know where to begin, but not least the fact that, as I said, you shouldn't make goals based in nostalgia. Secondly, a goal which only concerns the outer life is destined to become a shallow goal. Now, I'm not saying that health and fitness aren't important. They absolutely are. But if that's the only facet of, the, of that goal, if, it, if it's just about appearance, if it's just birth in vanity, if it doesn't actually have to do with an integrated vision of health and wholeness, including a spiritual component, then it isn't really uh, worthy, I don't think, of a human life. So it's got to be more than that going on. That's the second problem. But thirdly, and probably principally, a goal which only has to do with the self is deeply flawed. The Bible has a word for a life trained in, turned in on itself. That word is sin. That goal of my you know, goal of a few years ago was just totally self-focused. It didn't have benefit of others, didn't really even have my own broader benefit. The goal was flawed. And here's the thing, this is why goals are so important, because if our, if our goal is wrong, then even success is failure. If our goal is wrong, even if we succeed in reaching whatever uh, aim we set for our own lives, even if we reach that, that will be failure if the goal is wrong. We're aiming in the wrong direction. Arriving at our destination is irrelevant. So actually, this the idea of starting out and heading in the right direction to start with, setting the right course, as any sailor would likely tell you, is essential. Now for Paul, uh, Paul offers a different vision than the Johnny Hughes 2000 whatever it was vision of uh, New Year's resolutions. In fact, Paul's been offering uh, throughout this letter, his own example, 
And his own example is an example which goes so far beyond that. That the shallow story of self-fulfillment is it's unreal. He says this in the end of chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, I'm not even concerned about my life. My, but I'm not even at the center of my own story. There's a much bigger story at play here, and it isn't the story of Paul. So he's given his own example. And he said, you could, you could do with looking at that example. That's why he shared it. But even more significantly than that, for Paul, the goal is not just to imitate Paul, but to imitate Jesus Christ. And we looked at this last week, and I will talk on this hymn, right at the heart of this scripture. This hymn about Jesus, it says uh, in your relationships, verse 5 of chapter 2, your relationships with one another. Have the same mind as, mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't grasping at some uh, equality with God, that which he already had. Or something to be used for his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. In other words, for Jesus, the goal was the practice of a life of self-forgetfulness. And Paul holds this vision, this picture, this. Jesus, in front of the church in Philippi, says, if you're not heading here, you're heading in the wrong direction. I look at my goals, even four goals, all alliterate that I've made for this year, and I think, how many of them actually begin with the person of Jesus? How tempting is it to begin from Johnny Hughes and say, well, I could probably improve by 10% this year. Okay, let's be realistic, maybe five, maybe one percent, but I can be a better me this year. I want to say that's a failing at a basic level of discipleship because we don't begin where we are in that sense. Well, our vision, our, our perspective, our future is trained on Jesus. And it's when our eyes are trained on Jesus that we actually make progress. It's when we actually forget about ourselves and put our eyes upon Him that He does all His work in us. The healing and the wholeness come when we focus on Him. He is the goal. He is this, uh, the author of Hebrews says He's the author and perfecter, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In other words, He begins it and He perfects it, He completes it. And so the vision has to be Jesus. The goal has to be Jesus. And we know that's the right answer. I see you now, yeah, Jesus. <laughs> But truly, in very real terms, use your imagination, just for a second. Take an area of your life. Take your relationships. Imagine your most important relationship to you at the moment. Tell me, what would that relationship look like if Jesus was? How do you behave in that relationship? <coughs> Take finances. What was your what do you bank? What do you bank? Whatever it's called. Statement. Statement. Count. What would it look like? What would it look like if Jesus was more involved?
Who doesn't want the Lord Jesus? What would more of His presence in your life be? So what does this look like in practice for Paul? Well, he just, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture here in, in chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, you've always obeyed, not in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in to willing to act in accordance or in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything, here it is, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And you're thinking, I have everything without grumbling. We're like, I'm British, can I do a little bit? Please, just a little bit. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Here's the resolution. Blameless. Faultless. That isn't a resolution. Resolution Paul takes from where the Philippians are at and says, you know, I think you're sort of semi-blameless. Can we get to blameless this year? This isn't Philippians plus 10%. This is Jesus. He's saying, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. The standard is Jesus. This is his resolution. No grumbling, no arguing. Blameless, without, blameless means without fault. And then he says, pure. I love that. The original language of purity has this sense of literally means unmix. Unmix. In that sense, in that sense, it's simple, like made of one thing. Made of one thing. I, I think maybe another synonym would be having integrity. Consisting of one thing. Imagine that. Imagine that in this community. We were blameless and pure, increasing always in our faultlessness, in our in our integrity. What a beautiful picture of a church. Beautiful picture of an individual life. And then he goes on and he says, Then you will shine among them. In other words, among the people around you who are persecuting you. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky. As you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, of course, there's a pop song coming from my head, which I'm just resisting uh, the temptation to sing to you now. No, I'm doing it. No, I resist. It's my nearest resolution not to sing. <laughs> Stars. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Just the other day, I was, uh, we were, had a little holiday with the family and we were out walking the dog reasonably late. And I was just walking my daughter Grace and just looked at all the stars. And she was just pointing them all out. And I actually tried to get this app up because I don't know, I don't know one star from the next. <laughs> Good work. Anyway, it's this beautiful picture. Does the stars, stars have just incredible beauty? They are, in essence, beautiful, but they're also about navigation. So this image that Paul has here is he's saying, look, you are to be like those stars. You're going to, you're going to be a picture of beauty for the world. And because of you, the world is going to know where to go. You're going to be a, a navigating tool. The world is going to be able to triangulate to you, to fix their own direction based upon your behavior. Paul is saying live such beautiful lives that your beauty becomes an example and a point of reference to those around you. What a vision of life. The Bible has a word for this kind of life. Words that we use here. 
explicitly, but it's all the way through the passage. And the word is holiness. This is the vision of a holy life. A whole life. A life consisting of one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. That's the vision Paul has here for the church in Philippi. That's the vision he had for our life. A life of integrity and of holiness. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word holiness. Typically, I'd like to switch off. Because holiness in our culture, even in the church, I think has become a dirty word. It speaks of, well, for me, you know, my guitars and rainbow straps and my dad playing guitar in assembly and all those sort of awkward moments as a kid. It speaks of, like, um, you know, the church sex talk or, or uh, socks and sandals or self-righteousness, holier-than-thou dictation to a world and how she live. That's what we have in mind, many of us, when we hear the word holiness. And yet that's so far removed from what the Bible means when it talks about holiness. Holiness is, is moral goodness, yes. It has an ethical component, but it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger. Holiness is something that uniquely refers to God's nature. Specifically, his unique creative force through which he is able to create a world teeming with life. Holiness is God's ability, his power, with which and through which he is able to create life. Holiness is about life. It's not about death. It's not actually about prohibition. It's about possibility. It's about release of life in the world. And God is uniquely holy. He is able to uniquely release life. He has the power to release life. Now, holiness has all to do with power. I want to imagine the sun. An example of holiness. You can't look at it, you can't imagine it. The sun is uniquely powerful. At least in our galaxy, it is unique. There's only one of them. And it is powerful. The sun is a powerful force. It is so powerful that not just that even looking at it from here can damage you irreparably. It is powerful. Uh, so, so the area around the sun, it's not just touching the sun that would dissolve you. The area around the sun is also very dangerous. That's how powerful the sun is. And it's dangerous is not connected to its badness. It's dangerous. It, it, the peril surrounding the sun is connected with its goodness. It's so powerful. It's so good that it's dangerous. And it enables life on our planet. Without the sun... <laughs> We talked about kids, we talked about, I don't know how we got into it, but the idea of the sun's not going to be around forever. And we took, for some reason, the phrase in our house is in our kids say, Daddy, when the sun runs out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> it is an acceptable, uh, <laughs> not that it's a metaphor yet. Anyway, there we go. The sun uh, enables life for as long as it's there, we, we've got a good chance. It's like holiness. Holiness is unique, it's got unique power to enable life. But the thing about holiness we see in the scriptures, not just that it doesn't just belong to God, but holiness is contagious. And we see this uh, a developing vision of holiness, which is that it's contagious. Particularly we see this with Ezekiel's vision in the temple. I think we talked about this in Ezekiel 47. This vision of water leaving the temple, and wherever the water goes, what happens? Life springs forth. Even the Dead Sea becomes alive. <clears throat> people, uh, it used to be that in the Old Testament that, that sickness, that impurity caught 
go on. It was infectious. So that if something impure touched something pure, the pure thing would become impure. Does that make sense? Now what we see with Jesus, and in this vision Ezekiel has, is quite the opposite. That's that if Jesus touches something impure, I'm just going to use this as an example, Jack, I know you're not impure. But if Jesus touches an impure thing, the impure thing becomes pure. It's a complete reversal. Holiness, in other words, is more powerful than unholiness. Holiness is contagious. It shines like a star. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. That's why holiness matters. That's why holiness isn't an outdated concept. Quite matters for the church in the 21st century. It's not just in the, the church in the first century. Because it's contagious. Because it's good news. Because it is joy. Because it is, because it is life. And because it is peace. We want those things for our city. We want a blameless city. A pure city. A city that isn't full of grumbling, complaining, but full of peace and joy. That, it, that isn't full of anxiety, it's full of hope. We want that city, don't we? That is the city of holiness. That is a holy city. Waiting for a holy people to catch the holiness of God. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, you are these people. This thing, he's not saying become what you're not. He's saying you are these people because you're in Christ. Become who you are. This morning, church, become who you are. You are these people. You are holiness. You are faultless. You are people. Our goal matters because we are to shine like stars. We need not just a goal. Speed up here a little bit. We need a plan. We're going to need a plan. My plan would just head out into the darkness and run, do some setups, and it'll all be fine. Little did I uh, remind myself that when I was slightly slimmer and slightly stronger, I was playing football between three and five times a week. And uh, that was probably uh, what did it. Paul's plan for the church, here we see, he says, uh, verse 12 and 13, which I know Will touched on uh, last week. But he says this continue to work out your salvation if you're in trouble. Your salvation, firstly, let me just say very quickly about the plan that Paul has for the people. Firstly, it's your salvation. You as a plural there. Any plan birthed with just the individual in mind is destined to fail. This, this holiness thing, it's an us thing. It's not just about individuals. It's about groups of people together working it out, not a solitary thing. It's becoming a spiritual gym bones. No, it's about doing this together, living a life together. Your salvation, but Paul says work out. The word there for work out of salvation means accomplish or finish fully. It has less to do with starting, much more to do with finishing. Finish fully your salvation. I don't know what you think when you hear about this, but work out sounds a lot like earn your salvation. It sounds a lot like works righteousness. And we're so we're so, we see those concepts as being so toxic. Any, any notion that we have a role to play. But actually what we see in this text is that God is working and we are working. And without some effort and energy expended by us, without a plan, without intention, without work, we won't get where we want to get. And part of the reason we misunderstand this is because we totally misunderstand what freedom is. 
And in our culture, we think of freedom as the, the limitless possibility. My freedom is my ability to do what I want, with whom I want, whenever I want. Actually, in the Bible, we see that isn't the case. At all. Freedom is not about limitless possibility. Freedom is about embracing God-given limitation. It's about stepping into God's way in a deeper way. The limitation of a committed relationship, of a marriage commitment, of a covenanted friendship. The limitation of a two-drink limit. The limitation of a no-gossip word. Limitation of an accountable relationship. The limitation of a life, a commitment to service for other people. The limitation to giving other people a say on whether I take a promotion or not. This kind of limitation actually brings freedom. See, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That's what I said. Work out your salvation. It's going to be work. For us to reach the goal that Christ is calling us to, we'll take work. Finally, we need energy. I'll close with this. Then you'll shine among the white stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul says earlier on in the passage, he says it somewhere, I know it is. There we go. As you hold firmly to the word of life. Earlier on he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Where does the energy come from? This sounds a lot like hard work. And yet what we see is that a life trained on God has God as its inspiration. There's a bit that we do. We take the first step, as Amy was saying, but there's a bit that God does, and it is infinitely more than anything that you and I are able to bring to the table. And what God does is to inspire this life in us by, as Paul says, the word of life. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news that God hasn't stayed far off, but that he's become a holy man. And that a holy man who touches an impure and unholy man like me can make an impure and unholy man like me holy. And that's good news. And that word of life every morning energizes us to continue to walk forward. The fact that that man, that Jesus is by my side today. That I could be in his presence in this moment and his presence increasingly and uh, on and on and on through my life. That is good news. That is the word of life. Not a word of death saying you're not good enough. You'll never be enough. But a word that says, I am with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. But it's not just the word of life. It is also the one who works in us. Verse 13, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Who is the one? Working. The Holy Spirit is the <coughs> At this point, we have a major competitive advantage when it comes to fulfilling resolution. Do you get the power of this thing? What Paul is saying is that you might be doing some work, but who have you got on your team? God, the Holy Spirit, is at work 
in us. And what is he doing? I love this. To will and to act. The great, one of the great problems we have with following in the footsteps uh, of a resolution is the will. Our will becomes compromised. You see this ultimately in a picture of addiction. When the will itself is broken, it can no longer function. But what Paul is saying is that God will will on your behalf. God is going to give you his will in your life to enable you to follow. But not just the will, he will also act according to his good purpose. We have a goal. We have a plan. We have a promise that God's energy, his life, his own spirit will be at work in our lives. So what? Closing this question. What is your intention? Where are you headed? What does holiness look like in your life today? Your life, no one's. What does it look like in your life? What does it mean to be blameless and pure for you? Who, who, who have you been listening to? What might it look like if you understood that God Himself is willing and for your success. Church, let our inspiration and goal be Jesus Christ. Let our plan be to partner with God in the work He wants to do in our lives and in each other's lives. Let our energy come from the good news of the gospel and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in us. I will stand.